You know, I understand when there's not somebody to take the picture. I'm not coming down on you for taking selfies, and I know there's a certain generation um, that, uh, that takes selfies every, every day or um, perhaps several times a day. And I'm not coming down on that. I'm not giving you a hard time about that. But I'm just trying to picture my 81-year-old father, who was a, 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 a pediatric surgeon, uh, kind of stepping into his practice and saying, I, I think I'm going to take a selfie now. Or, or, or imagine, uh, imagine a, a, a judge um, who's you know, sort of spent years in, in the making, and uh, he dons his robe and steps up onto the bench, and he's going to take a selfie. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm not picking on selfies, but what I am picking on is I'm, I'm, I'm kind of picking on human nature that centers the world around self. That's our big problem, isn't it? There's a book several years ago that came out. It's the second bestseller of all time next to the Bible. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. And the opening line of that book, I think, sort of struck everybody. It's not all about you. You know, I, I pictured it's a little bit like um, when, when, when Paul was, was teaching in the Areopagus and the uh, Areopagus, sort of the religious leaders of the day, they said, what is this new teaching? It's not all about you. <laughs> I, I kind of picture people across the, the country and around the world going, what is this new teaching that it's not all about me? Well, of course it's all about me. What is this new teaching? I'd like to hear more about this. I think that's one of the reasons why it sort of struck people. It's not all about you. It's really our, our, our big issue. And it's the reason why we have wars. It's the reason why we have arguments. It's the reason why some people will go to bed tonight without something to eat. The world is centered around ourselves. And we know it. And we know it. And so we come together and we celebrate the fact that there is a power at work in us and through us to recenter life around God and not around ourselves. And so let's ask the question again. Let's ask the question again. Can Jesus really save us from ourselves? Because even though we make a commitment, even though we've, we, we, we can look back and, and see some changes in our lives and maybe even see some fruit of faith, hope, and love, I know that you feel what I feel, and that is a sense of frustration, that, that this shift from self-centeredness to God-centeredness is, is maybe a bit too slow. And so with a sense of reassurance, let's, let's look at Hebrews chapter 5, asking the question, can God really... Can Jesus really save us from ourselves? And if so, why is that? Hebrews chapter 5, starting with verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. You see what's going on there? There's a high priest and once a year in the Old Testament, the high priest was appointed uh, to, to take 
a lamb and to sacrifice it, to go behind in this tabernacle that represented really the temple, to go in behind the first curtain and then to go in behind the second curtain and to sacrifice a lamb and, and that the blood, the blood would be sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And so here is the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews saying that he's describing this, this role this annual role of priest. He goes on, that priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, I've already, I've already intimated that this morning, right? I've already empathized with the fact that our self-centeredness is slow to shift, right? So picture that. That priest, he's not perfect, he's not different from anybody else except that he's set apart. That's what holy means, set apart for a particular role. Because of this, he is obligated to sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron, of course, the brother of, of Moses, who represented this priestly line. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, and this is from quoting from Psalm 110, you are my son, not just a priest, not just one in the Levitical line, right? Not just part of the Le Levitical line of priests. You are my son, he says. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that comes from Leviticus chapter 16 where it talks about this, this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. We'll get, it, we'll get into that in just a minute. What is he saying about Jesus? Well, what he's saying is he can save us from ourselves. That's what he's saying. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, right? Picture Garden of Gethsemane. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's a lot to think about. But in just a few minutes, you're going to know exactly what all this means. <laughs> so we better pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you that you're equal to our need because of who you are, and what you did. Help us to understand and be confident and outward in living this hope and this reality. In Jesus' name, amen. So can Jesus save us from ourselves? Yes, he can because of two things. Number one, who he is. And number two, what he did. Let's take a look at who he is and what he did. First of all, who he is matters. 
Son of God. Jesus, Son of God. We just sang it. Because now, as the Son of God dying, he has the authority to be a substitute, not just a good example. Jesus dying in your place is called a substitute. He atones for your sins. He makes up for them. He pays the price for them. There are all kinds of ways that we, we, we express this. You see, these are all metaphors for what Jesus, how Jesus' authority does something, right? He has the authority to be a substitute, a substitute. Now, look, let, let's, let's think about how important it is that Jesus is who he is as a substitute. I could die for you, right? I, I probably wouldn't, all right? I mean, maybe some of you, a couple of you. I'm, I'm, I'm teasing. It sounds like I'm teasing, but I'm actually quoting the scripture from Romans. Um, talks about uh, how, how uh, people may die for one another if, if, uh, if they really have a strong enough sense of their worthiness. That's how we look at it. I could die for you, but what would it do? What would it do? It might set a good example right? It might inspire some people. A, a professor named Robert George has offered to, uh, to take the punishment of an Islamic blogger. Did you hear about this? This is just about a year ago. Robert George is a seminary professor at Princeton, and um, there's a fellow named Ra- Raif Badawi who was critical of some Islamic clerics. And he has been sentenced to a thousand lashes. And they're, they're doing this 100 lashes at a time. And so uh, Dr. Robert George has gotten together with, uh, with 10 other uh, men across the country. And they have written an open letter to these clerics. And they have said, we would like for you to uh, consider letting him go, letting this, this journalist go, freeing him from prison. And we would like you to, uh, to in, in his place, uh, put each one of us, we're willing each to take the punishment, a hundred of those lashes apiece. This actually happened just about a year, 18 months ago. They haven't taken him up on it. Would you do that? I mean, th- th- this actually happened. Th- this, is, this is in the news. Would you, would you do that? And, and if you did that, what's the legacy that you're leaving? What is, what is the message that's sent? Well, it's, it's certainly a message that says we, we have a lot more in common than divides us. It's certainly a bridge-building attempt. It's, it's definitely a message about grace and and a demonstration in action rather than in words of the message, the unique message of grace that is the gospel. But we cannot take each other's punishment where it really counts because we don't have the authority to. Let me, let, me, let me show you exactly what's happening when Jesus, instead of the, 
the Levite, instead of the Levite priest going into the Holy of Holies. Let me show you how the difference, that's like Robert George taking a hundred lashes, right? Let me show you the difference where Jesus, who is in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus, when he takes our punishment, he has the authority to do so because he's the one who laid down the law. The cross is the intersection of the greatest act of judgment and the greatest act of mercy. In one act, in one substitutionary act of atonement, the cross is the intersection of judgment and mercy, of grace and truth. It's a little bit like the father who said to his his son, "Uh, you need to clean up your room. And he refused. He was disobedient. He was a rebel. He wasn't obeying his father. He said, you need to clean up your room or there are going to be consequences. There's going to be a consequence. And see, I'm, I'm, I'm compressing a lot of biblical history from Genesis through Revelation in a, a very short story here. You, you, you need to obey me or there are going to be some consequences, right? Sort of generally, there are going to be some consequences. And then he says to his son, okay, you, you need to obey me. You need to clean up your room or tonight you're going to have bread and water while the rest of us have steaks and potatoes. Didn't do it. And so that night, the father sat down and he put bread and water in front of the son's plate. And he sat down, the rest of the family sat there with, uh, with their full meal. And the son began to cry and he realized that uh, there are really consequences and that his father is a man of his word and he's somebody he can count on when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. He's somebody who has integrity. He's somebody who's going to follow through with those consequences. He's somebody you can count on that when there are consequences laid out, they're going to be meted out. And then, after the blessing, what happened was this. The father stood up And he took his plate, and he walked over to his son's place, and he exchanged his plate for the son's plate. And he sat, and he ate the bread and the water, while the son enjoyed the full, the fullness of the meal. The man who wrote this, these words, said this, All my life, I've known who God is and what he's like because of what my father did that night. You see, what what Jesus is demonstrating to us in action is the message of the gospel around which All of biblical history revolves. The purpose of this old Levitical line, the purpose of the sacrificial system is to remind us again and again on an annual basis that there are consequences, that there is a condition and it is a self-centered condition and that there needs to be a shift on the basis of a promise 
that, that this, this sacrificing of a lamb year after year, just, just as Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, his only son, who you love, right? That's what God said to Abraham. And God says, I will provide a lamb. You know, see, just like, just like Robert George offering himself in the place of that journalist, Rahif, it, it, it shows a good example. It, it captures the principle. But what Jesus did was to fulfill justice and mercy once and for all, for all who would believe in him, who would receive him that they would have the righteousness of God. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Why? On what basis? On the basis of a Levitical priest later on coming and and offering a lamb? No. On the basis of the priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was, was, was in the time of Abraham, he was a priest Whose, whose origin, like his family origins, were really mysterious. And that was kind of sort of a thing about Melchizedek. He, Melchizedek means son of righteousness or king of righteousness. And, 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 and his origin, his family line is, is really unknown. And so, and so the Hebrew writer is using this as a way of saying, just as the origins of Melchizedek and his calling is God-appointed and somewhat mysterious and beyond our grasping and beyond our measurement and beyond any human endeavor, so are you the fulfillment of God's promise in the covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. You see, that's how important it is that Jesus is who he is because only as God Only as God does he have the authority to exchange plates with you. Only as God does he have the authority not to just provide a good example and not just to encourage you in the way that some people can be selfless, but actually to do something in your life about your selfishness. He's done something, and he has the authority to do it because of who he is. Second, what he did. And you say, well, you've already talked about what he did. You no, know, no, but let's, let's drill down a little deeper, okay? Let's peel back one more layer. What actually did Jesus do as God by taking our place? What did he do? He obeyed. He obeyed. I've said a hundred times in here, it's not by grace. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works. What did he do? He obeyed. It's a work. The covenant of works, the covenant originally between God and man. Be, be fruitful and multiply. Take care of this earth. Don't touch that tree. Don't eat of it. Obey. This is the relationship. I'm master, you are servant. I am the creator. You're the created. We did not fulfill that covenant, that that agreement. That structure was broken. What did Jesus do in obeying? He fulfilled the works. That's why some places he's called the second Adam. Jesus 
fulfilled a covenant, the covenant of works. In order to do what? In order to do what you saw demonstrated this morning in baptism, to extend to us the covenant of grace. That's what Jesus did. He obeyed God. You see in verse 7 how it says, he cried out to the Lord. Emotionally, on an emotional level, he was a man, right? He was a human being anticipating excruciating pain and suffering, anguish over being separated from God, anguish over the physical punishment that was coming, anguish over taking on sin that he'd never known, being put on him. And yet, he wasn't just a man. As God, he fulfilled what was needed. He obeyed. He followed through. It wasn't just that God said, I'm going I'm to provide a lamb and the lamb is just going to do my bidding because I'm going to force him to. Jesus was able to step aside from this. He, by his own will, chose to die. Think about that. Think about that. It wasn't just that God said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to do this. Jesus said, I will do it. I will do it. You see, here's what's happening. Here's what's happening, and then we're done. And this is so important that you understand exactly why Jesus obeying does something in your life. Why is it? Think about it. Why is it that that Jesus dying for you can take the center of your life and shift it from you, off of you, off of your self-centeredness onto a God-centered life? Why is it? And here's the reason. And I'm going to illustrate it first, and then I'm going to connect it. And the illustration is Aesop's fables about the goose and the golden egg. Remember that? Remember the goose and the golden egg? The goose that laid the golden egg, and the farmer said, oh, wow, this is great. I got a golden egg. And he took it. He had it, he had it uh, tested out, and it turned out it was a solid gold egg. And then the next morning, the, the goose produced another egg, and he was, oh, great. This is fantastic. And, and, and then he began to focus on the eggs. He started to think, I want more of these. These are great. I like these. Let's see if there are more inside of the goose. And in trying to find, in his greed, trying to find more of the golden eggs inside the goose. He killed the goose that laid the golden egg, right? That's the principle of the story. Don't kill the goose that lays the golden egg. You know, let me, let me tease out the, let me walk you towards applying what I'm, what I'm talking about and explaining this passage. Beth and I talk a lot about parenting, of course, uh, through the years we've talked a lot about it, and we we, we've, we've used this, um, this illustration of the goose and the golden egg to think about what is it that, that we really want from our kids? Do we want the golden egg or do we want the goose? Do we want the room clean or do we want the heart of the kid who wants to clean up the room, who wants to obey? Do you want the chore done or do you want a kid who is participating in the life of the family? Do you just want the boxes checked or... Do you want to have a relationship that's healthy, that's ordered, 
See, what God is doing in putting himself in our place, in obeying the covenant that we could not obey, in fulfilling the promise that he made to himself and to us, is he's doing what we can't do so that when we obey, there's nothing added to it. And the only thing we do when we obey God is love him back. That's the goose. You got up this morning and got dressed up. You look great just to be called a goose. That's you. You're the goose. You're the goose that God made because he doesn't just want the golden egg. He's not just looking at a certain set of behaviors. He wants you. He wants you. And so Palm Sunday and Holy Week and Easter, they stand before us as a week set apart as holy. Let's walk together this week daily giving thanks that God on the cross has met our need so that we can respond to him in relationship and not just in begrudging obligation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the demonstration of the gospel of peace. Thank you for making peace with us, for your invitation, for the authority with which you fulfilled your covenant, and for the powerful demonstration of your love for us, which is the cross. For we pray in the power of the cross and in the powerful name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.